Welcome to Mancy, a show about the history of magic and how it has influenced our culture. I'm spoken word artist R.J. Walker. My name is Elle Alder, and I'm a professional psychic, and I have been for seven years. And this is part two of our episode on bibliomancy. Last time, we talked about the poet Virgil and the Aeneid that he wrote that supposedly predicted the rise and fall of emperors. But sometimes, when a poet dies, they become a poem. Like how the mysterious circumstances of Edgar Allan Poe's death gave way to its own legends. Virgil, too, became a legend. Perhaps the most exaggerated and absurd (laughs) of any poet or artist who ever lived. This is part two of Bibliomancy. Divination by book. More people were turning to the Bible for bibliomancy, swapping the Sortes Virgiliane for (laughs) the Sortes Sanctorum, Mm -hmm. which is using the Bible or hymns uh, in the Middle Ages. However, legends of Virgil as a magician and mystic began to grow. Virgil the poet had become Virgil the magician, and they believed that the Aeneid predicted the birth of Christ. What? Like Virgil, when writing the Aeneid, predicted the birth of Christ. And because people did bibliomancy and were like, I bet they did bibliomancy to determine the birth of Christ. See, it says here in Virgil's poetry that Jesus is going to be born, I guess. Hot takes, hot takes. Okay. (laughs) And so, being very accepted by the church still, and also written in Latin, the spooky magic language that only some people can read, um, tales of Virgil uh, began to crop up. And they are just totally insane. I found an old book from the 1800s titled The Unpublished Legends of Virgil. And I found some old fables to share. (laughs) Okay. Now... There's a whole bunch of them. I found this book using Project Gutenberg, which is just awesome. They take public domain books and publish them online so that anybody can read them. Um, That's so great. That's a great thing, it actually. Really is. I love that. Yeah. You know, uh, really is. Project Gutenberg, solid, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you research podcasts. <laughs> um, so here's, here's, one of the, here's one of the fables. Um, this one is called Virgil and the Very Ugly Man. Okay. (laughs) I I picked some of my favorites, and I'm just going to do this the way it would have been done, like, in the Middle Ages, like an oral history. You put your own little flavor on it. You know, my own little virgin. (laughs) I think you should leave it. Fine, I'll leave it in. My own little version of the legend. In the city, there was a very ugly man. Just the ugliest dude you ever did see. He was vile and curmudgeonly, Mm. and he was mean as a scorpion to everyone he saw. He was more like a goblin or an imp. (laughs) He was short and gravelly and crunchy. Crunchy? 
I like my <laughs> adjectives. Thank you. That gives you a very specific uh, right image. Yeah. I'm a poet. Um, I know. Okay. Worst of all, this very ugly man was filthy, stinking rich. Of course he was. He asked the most beautiful girl in the city to marry him, and the girl agreed. News that the very ugly man was going to marry the very beautiful woman reached the high society of the city. I just don't understand how she could marry that goblin of a man, a high-born lady told Virgil, who was staying on her estate. Virgil shrugged and didn't say a word. That night... He walked to the outskirts of the city and found two scorpions sleeping through the cold desert night. He used his magic to turn them to gold. Virgil brought the golden scorpions to the high-born lady as a gift. A new pair of earrings for you, he said. She was overjoyed and immediately put them in her ears, (laughs) and they shined and glittered in the sun. Virgil told her, Yesterday, you asked why the beautiful woman would marry the very ugly man. The same reason you love those scorpion earrings. Gold. And the woman laughed, and then she felt a sharp pinch on her cheek. The warmth of the sun was waking them up. Virgil smiled and said, But golden or not, a scorpion is still a scorpion. So he just married this woman to kill her or, like, to keep her intimidated? This man is hateful. I dislike him. What, Virgil? Yeah. Virgil didn't marry anybody. No, 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 no. The very ugly man. Sorry. Oh, the very ugly man? Yeah. He married her because he wanted a very beautiful wife, I'm guessing. Okay. So he just was Fables assume a lot of things. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. I'm ready. And she married him, obviously, (laughs) because he was filthy, stinking rich. Yeah. Um, And then Virgil... Uh, answering this lady's question using his magic to mm. illustrate a moral, like an Aesop fable, God. was like, these earrings are very beautiful, but they're still scorpions. Oh, I missed the part where it was like Virgil doing it. Sorry. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, you know, if I could tell you the amount of clients I have that are very rich and very unhappy, <laughs> it's a lot of them. Yeah, and, uh, you know, just because the earrings are gold doesn't make them not scorpions either. Right, yeah. Hmm. Um, so these are these are what's called didactic fables. Okay. Like Aesop fables. They're meant to, like, teach a lesson or always have a moral at the end. Um, <laughs> okay. Our, our modern archetype of, like, the wizard, like the wise old man who, like, steps in and teaches you a lesson for being dumb or <laughs> a jerk. Um very much comes from these, like, Virgil fables. And he used his magic power to, like, teach these dumb people a lesson. Mm. And uh, one story stands out to me. I told you a little bit about this one because it's just so hilarious. <laughs> okay. Um, this, this story was so popular that in the Middle Ages it created its own idiom. Virgil in his basket. Okay. So, honestly, this story is great. It gets really weird at the end, right? Okay. It keeps going when it definitely shouldn't. Um, <laughs> but it goes, it goes like this. Okay. A young Virgil was completely enamored with the emperor's oldest daughter. He would try and try to court her, but she would always rebuff his advances. 
Eventually, she agreed to see him, but only in secret, because if the emperor saw her being courted by Virgil, Virgil would be executed. She told him that she had a plan. Virgil must come to her tall tower in the middle of the night. She would lower a basket for him to climb in. And then she would winch him up to her chamber in the basket so that they could, you know, canoodle. How large was the basket? Large enough. Large enough to fit Virgil, I guess. Okay. Large enough to fit a poet that died of heat stroke. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And Virgil was like, yes, a foolproof plan. And that night at midnight, Virgil arrived at the princess's tall tower in his sexy night clothes. And he I just a, a red satin robe, like <laughs> yeah. just tied up. I know, yeah. a little bit of chest hair. Like, oh yeah. Out. Yeah, for sure. The gold chain. It got yeah. really yep, okay. I'm there. I'm visually there. <laughs> so he's in his sexy night clothes and he climbs into the basket. He gives the thumbs up for her to winch him up and she starts to raise the basket. Then she stops halfway and just leaves him there. Just chilling in a basket in his sexy night clothes, halfway up a tower, can't get down, can't go up. Listen, I am also annoyed by men, but I don't know that I would do that to someone. There's some people I would do that to. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Especially in sexy night clothes. Yeah. Yes. And then, well, the sun comes up and yeah. everyone sees this man in his ridiculous sexy night clothes just shivering in his basket. Oh, no. <laughs> and public ridicule of Virgil began. <laughs> um, this is really fun because it's one of the legends where Virgil isn't like the wise old man, really. He gets, he gets had, he gets duped. He gets got. He gets got. Yeah. (laughs) And the king praised his daughter for her wit, having fooled this great magician. Mm -hmm. The king then ordered Virgil to be cut down from his basket, then literally cut down, like, from his life, Mm -hmm. to be executed. Uh, In order to escape the chopping block, Virgil did probably the weirdest goddamn thing you could think of. This is where it gets weird. Okay. It definitely should just end with Virgil being (laughs) trapped in a basket, shivering, and being made fun of. Yes, that should be like a lesson of chastity or something. I know. And the the idiom, like Virgil in his basket, means like. Don't get caught with your pants down. Yeah. There's another idiom for you. You're you're like a fuckboy, and you should like listen when people tell you to like back off. Like, okay. accept rejection. I resonate with this woman more than I thought I did. <laughs> yeah, just, like, accept rejection or else you're going to look like an idiot. Right, yeah. Um, so. <laughs> and everyone will know <laughs> your red satin robe. Yeah. Um, so... What Virgil did, this is so weird, uh, <laughs> he cast a spell that made all the fires in Rome go out. Mm. Then he gave the emperor's daughter the power to shoot sparks out of her vagina. What? The only way to light fires in Rome was by her vagina. Virgil agreed to lift the curse in exchange for his life. Hi. Mm. Uh, mm. Wow, what a story. Why didn't you just, like, teleport or something? Like, if you can do that. I, there's so, I have so many questions, and I'm um, like... I think the, the lesson, I guess, is that he was... The, the poetics of it is that she subjected him to public ridicule, and so he's subjecting her to public ridicule by having to make vagina fire. 
I, I, um, you know, I'm going to be honest. If I had that power, I probably wouldn't trade it. I would be like, you know what? I'm still going to let you die. You know what? We're going to execute you. Yeah, like still. We're going to burn you. you. We're going to burn you at the stake and I'm going to light that fire yeah, with my vagina. Sparks. That's what's going to happen. That's <laughs> like that would 100% be my revenge and he would be like looking me in the eye like crying and begging for his life and I'd be like you didn't learn the first time. I don't know how to help you. Is <laughs> it? Like it's fine. I'll suffer. I don't care. Go. <laughs> uh, so in medieval times, Virgil wasn't a poet writing propaganda for the empire before dying of dehydration and heat stroke. <laughs> he was a powerful wizard, all because he spent 10 years writing fan fiction that he never wanted to publish anyway. <laughs> and that fan fiction became a magical tool that predicted the rise of emperors, the outcomes of battles, and even the birth of Christ. You never know when you write some shit, and then a thousand years later, you might just be a wizard. Okay, as a psychic, like, I am always fascinated at the hot takes of my clients, like, when I say something. So I have, um, like, several people that I work with locally that are, like, my colleagues, and we often have, like, shared clients, like— we don't mind. It's totally fine. Like, psychics don't care if you go see other psychics because it's fine. Like, we all get it. So um, it's interesting because every once in a while my friend will be like, oh, yeah, our mutual client said that you said X, Y, Z. And I'm like, that's not what I said at all. Or she'll get people who come back that are like, well, you told me that I had to, like, trick him into cheating on me and then catch him. And that's why he's in jail right now. Or some ridiculous thing that we're like, that was not what we were what we had said. But... Humans uh, make some really interesting uh, choices and rules. So one more legend. Okay. <laughs> and this one, I, just the title. Like, I stopped at the title, and I was like, <laughs> what the hell? Okay. Um, it's titled, The Stone Fish and How Virgil Made It Eatable. Okay. <laughs> made it eatable. Yeah. <laughs> And I really like uh, how it was written in um, the unpublished Legends of Virgil. So I'm going to, like, read, like, part of it off of Okay. That. I'm excited. <clears throat> in the old times, when things were so different from what they are now, the blue, bluer, the red, redder. When grains of maize were as big as grapes, and grapes as big as pomegranates, and pomegranates as big as melons, and the Arno was always full of water, and the water was so full of fine, large fish that everybody had as many as he wanted, and the sun and moon gave twice as much light, and there was, not far from Via Reggio, a castle. And the signor who owned it was a great bandit who robbed all the country round, as all the gentlemen did in those times when they could. For it is true that with all the blessings of those days, they had some curses. That's like how it opens. Like, did they really think that like ancient Rome was this like magical, like far away Neverland? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, I so I went on like another spiritual trip. That's like what I do. I like pretty much only take trips to go on like spiritual searches. So we went to Tulum like right before Corona time started or happened. So like the very beginning of March. In Tulum, they were telling us that it was like that, that they had water and they had all the food that they could possibly eat. And they pretty much like 
ran that entire part of the world. Like Mayan people were like a very, very strong, very formidable force. Um, and they just basically what killed them is that they poisoned their own water supply. And that, so it's kind of true that Somebody like Somebody poisoned a water hole. Well, they poisoned it literally with like dead people, which is pretty no, unfortunate. Yeah, they were like throwing bad. children in it and oh, no. poisoned their water supply. And that was how, um, yeah, not great. So um, that's kind of the thing, though, because we can also see that reflected in our modern day. If you look around at the world of all the things that we don't have that we had a long time ago. and Yeah, well, I mean, you think about this like nostalgia lens, especially oh, with like uh, yeah. Make America Great Again. It really never was great. In no. fact, it had a lot of like really awful BS, right? But, America's had a lot of bad things for a long there's time. there's this lens of nostalgia that makes everything so ridiculous and fake that it might as well be a fairy tale. Well, yeah, and I think that's just the human condition is, like, you – people, humans, like, inflate the meaning of things. There's a really good book. I think it's called On Love, um, and it's, a, like, a very philosophical novel about um, – memories and how we fall in love with things and like one particular passage in it talks about how in the actual moment like right before you go skiing you're at the top of the skiing hill and you're like looking down um and there's you're filled with like terror right like you're looking down and you're like holy shit how am i gonna get the side down the side of this mountain um but when you look back on it it's excitement and it's oh my god i can't believe i did mm, that and it was so yeah. fun and so like the moments you have like in that like falling in love is terrifying right like being really open and honest with people is like awful and really scary then you look back and you're like oh but I was so loved and accepted and I was able to say what I needed to say so it's kind of interesting because that's kind of the human condition to like take all of these things that have been awful in practice and then inflate their meaning and layer meaning and excitement and everything on top of it to kind of justify the torture that we go through well I'm a cynic it's fine <laughs> that was a bit of a tangent from the stonefish and how Virgil made it eatable we have our energy clearing bowl bell <laughs> that clears energy, I guess. So we, we had to clear the energy for Yeah, now. whenever okay. we go on a tangent, we've got to, like, you know, clear the energy. with. The... That was very nice. That was a much more subtle. It was, it was a tap. Yeah. <sighs> uh, anyway, let's get, back, let's get <laughs> okay. back to this dumb legend. Okay, this was, dumb legend. This was written in 1319. Like, this was, like, a story. I guarantee their grapes were not as big as pomegranates <laughs> in 1319. It was the Dark oh, no. Ages, for hell's sake. He's talking about— um, Oh, way before yeah, then. he's like, in ancient Rome, basically— uh, everything was great. We're in the Dark Ages now, so everything sucks. Well, um, I mean, it's just the Dark Ages. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I probably would, uh, you know, if I lived in the Dark Ages, I probably would be like, man, did everything always suck this bad? And then... Are we not there? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is not the recreation, the recreation of that. I know. The Dark Ages is just like 2020 for an entire, like, eon. 2020. <laughs> um... I am going to, I think, just, like, bind this year to itself. And, yeah, it's so bad. Anyway, okay. Okay. So now I'll go I'll go on to my telling of it. Okay. <laughs> because this is so weird and heightened. Uh, so um, a poor fisherman, like, okay. he captures one of these, like, giant fancy fish that okay. apparently are f everywhere. Was it Cyril? Is that a, his name? It's a toonie. Yeah, it's Searle from, <laughs> from River Monsters on Netflix. <laughs> like, I'm a nerd for regular nerd things. L, L is a nerd for fishing shows for some reason. I, I swear to God it's because I have, like, past life. You know what? 
I just want to hear you do the Cyril voice. <laughs> We're going to call him Cyril. I've decided. Okay. Uh, so Cyril, <laughs> the poor fisherman, um, cat, catches a big toonie. A toonie. A toonie. A toonie it says in, in the legend, it says toonie. Uh, oh. I guess uh, a tuna. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, and it was a big, it was a big fish. And he was, like, having a hard time carrying it. His donkey was, like, getting sick of carrying it up the mm-hmm. hill. Uh, and the bandito Monsignor, who lived in his tower on the hill, saw this and was like, this guy is just so easy to rob. How could I not rob him? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it'd be like that. Yeah. And uh, so uh, the the bandito, like, robs him, takes his fish. Uh, and then gives him like a bottle of like liquor in exchange to make fun of him. It, how how does that make fun? Because he's like taking away something he needs and giving him back something else. Well, um, what the, what I'm interpreting it is that like it's kind of like oh you're poor. All poor people do is drink anyway. You know. Uh, well, I was just like, like die of alcohol poisoning like the other poor people. Oh, that's gross. Yeah, it's um, really gross. What, what? Um. Yeah. Also, is it really robbing? I guess if you trade something, but I guess well, it's just to ridicule. He, ridicule he didn't him. trade. He stole the fish and then was just like, "Oh, here, here's, have a bottle of alcohol. Here's this, yeah. uh, because this is for poor people, and your tuna is mine. <laughs> <laughs> your toonie. I've got your toonie, Cyril. Um, okay. And uh, the the fisherman was just like pissed <laughs> i would be so and mad i'm gonna try to read this in um the voice of searle from river monsters i'm gonna do my best searle impression if you haven't watched it he has um like he, a combination yeah he's an unplaceable accent from like a bunch of different places and he speaks like five languages yeah so it's yeah okay he's honestly very wholesome i searle is he catches he only catches and release you don't have to see fish die it's, it's yeah not, like yeah. he'll literally apologize he's like i'm so sorry but i was with these like village people and they really needed the f- anyway <laughs> searle's a good person yeah. i'm ready for the uh voice anyway the, he uh, yells a curse at the bandit. May God forget and the devil remember thee. And as thou hast mocked my poverty, mayest thou pass centuries in worse suffering than ever was known to the poorest man on earth. Thou shalt live in groans and lamentations. Thou shalt, thou accursed of God and despised by the devil. Thou shalt never have peace by day or by night. <laughs> thou shalt be in utter wretchedness until thou shalt see someone eat this fish. Mm. And then it's written like in Latin, like the curses. Um, That's intense. Yeah. Okay. And uh, just as the, the, the poor man's like curse came true when the mm. bandito like brought his fish to his table to eat it, it turned to like hard stone so no one could eat it but and then the bandito turned to stone and he became a statue and he's forced to just like be a statue until somebody eats the stone fish that's a dope curse that's that is some really good justice i like that and then uh years later Mm -hmm. you know his like castle like falls into disrepair he's just a statue he's vanished uh you know they don't know where he's gone Mm -hmm. and then uh another like Lord, like buys the castle. He's like, this is going to be my castle. And I have a really hot young daughter because this is a fable. I, yeah. Are all of the daughters hot? Of course. <laughs> okay. Of course they are. Um, 
you know they're they, probably thinking about that during the dark ages as well yeah, how like, beautiful uh, the greek and roman women were yeah like, god, they're so beautiful <laughs> i bet their ankles were so oh like, god oh, so good yeah. <laughs> that definitely needed to clear the energy yeah. after that one <laughs> um so uh there's a, a poor like hunter lad living mm-hmm. under this lord mm-hmm. and he has just fallen in love with the daughter the daughter loves him back okay. but he's like a poor hun- hunter lad yeah he just you know traps animals and, he's got enough but it's not much yeah, yeah. He, d- he doesn't have much but the lord is like no i will not have my daughter marry not. some poor plebeian not not on your life <laughs> Tell you what, if you can eat this stone fish that I cannot get off of my table, then you can marry my daughter. And the kid was like, Dope. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think I can do that. Yeah. Um, And so he's just like totally just like heartbroken. He can Mm. never see the Lord's daughter again. And uh, so he's just like hunting in the woods and he manages to snag not one. But two rabbits. What? Good luck. Yeah. You know, good luck. Great. He's got two rabbits. Uh, and he's on his way out of the woods. Like, well, at least I got these two rabbits. Mm-hmm. He's, he's Jeremy. His yeah. name is Jeremy. Oh, yeah, it's Jeremy. It's Jeremy. He's like, I got my two rabbits, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I can't eat that fish made of stone. <laughs> that <laughs> really hurts my feelings because mm-hmm. I love that lady. Boy, how do I do? Yeah. <laughs> and, Poor uh, Jeremy. And uh, as he's walking out, he sees Virgil just like being a vagabond wizard, I guess. Just like wandering around, like looking under rocks for bugs to eat. Mm-hmm. And Virgil sees him and he's like... <gasps> You have a rabbit. I have money. Can I buy a rabbit from you? Oh, okay. Uh, and the 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 hunter kid is like, well, Jeremy is like, <laughs> well, tell you what, sir. I'll just give you one of these rabbits because you look a mite hungry. Aww. And I think mayhaps you might do me a good turn sometime in the future. Well, this is good karma. I like it. It is good karma because Virgil is like, Really? You never know. You're just going to give it to me? Yeah, you never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, well, I don't I don't like to be indebted to people. Right. That's not good. I don't want to owe anyone a favor, so just ask for whatever you want now, and I'll just give it to you. Uh, what do you want? More than anything in the world, what do you want? And uh, I want to marry this, this lady. And, and yeah, Jeremy the Hunter is like, well, uh, if only there was some way I could eat that stone fish. <laughs> that just tells sit, him his whole story. Sitting in that yonder tower over there. And Virgil was like, really? That's a weird thing to want. You just want to eat this stone fish that's in the tower. And he's like, yeah, but more than anything in the world, I want to eat this fish made of stone. I feel like there's so much context <laughs> that you would really need to yeah. understand that request. And, and Virgil was like, okay, we can probably do that. I'm guessing it's not a statue of a fish because it seems so weird. There's just yeah. a stone fish. So here's a magic pouch of salt. Mm. Sprinkle the salt That's over, all. over the stone fish. And if it's not a human, <laughs> if it's not a human, it literally says that's that fair. In, in the legend. If it's not a human that's been turned into a stone yeah. fish, <laughs> then you can eat it. You know what? That's We, we got to... Um... I think that magic with parameters is very important and something <laughs> yeah. that is often overlooked. So I appreciate yeah. that. Oh, and it's a silver, like a silver box full of salt. It's not a pouch. It's oh, sil- okay. Because silver like is a... magic. Yes. Yeah. Silver is super magic. Yeah. Um, so sprinkle the salt and it will grow tender and it will taste good and you can eat it. But first, 
you have to say this incantation. And there's like an incantation written in Latin. It translates to fish. If once a man thou wert, then remain e'en as thou art. But if a fish, I hear ordain that thou become a fish again. So they're like, if this is a human, like, obviously you deserved this. Yeah. Like, whatever you did, I'm not going to undo that magic. Uh, but if you're a fish, <laughs> yeah, right? We're okay. Gonna, we're going to eat you. That must mean, like, I think, I mean, obviously the fish was huge, but I'm thinking like a six foot, like, because if it's that big that they're like, well, it could maybe have been a human. That's a, that's like a very large fish. Yeah. Does he have to eat the whole fish to marry the girl? I guess he just has to eat it. Okay. Um, All right. So, and also in the original legend, his name was Luigi, um, the hunter. Um, oh, my God. Which is even dorkier oh than God. Jeremy. Uh, I'm a Luigi, <laughs> the, the hunter. I got the extra rabbit, and now I got a box full of silver magic salt. Um, Dude, I feel like Luigi is, like, just so <laughs> earnest and wholesome. And he, like, bumbles through life, like, from one mishap to another, but somehow does enough good to be saved. And, like, same, same. And, like, that archetype is very much in like like they use these archetypes for fables yeah. so that you know what's going on and like as long as you keep the archetypes intact you can tell the story however you want right so anyway uh jeremy luigi the hunter <laughs> he's just well excuse me my lord but i think i will accept your challenge and i will eat that stone fish and the lord was like see a poor person break his teeth and bleed all over my counter This sounds like a good time. Yeah. Come on in. (laughs) Give it a go. I think all the people that lived in this castle are inherently bad people. Maybe except for the daughter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we don't know much about the daughter because, like, who writes three-dimensional women in 1300? Uh, Who writes three-dimensional women now? Uh, You know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he goes to the stonefish and he's like, I just have... But one humble request, my lord. Um, I would like to season it with my own salt. Mm -hmm. And I would like to say my own prayer. And the Lord was like, those sound reasonable. I mean, salt is just rocks. You're adding to your rocks. So you might as well have salty rocks. Salty rocks. Uh, And like, I'm a man of the gods. So say your prayer. Of Uh, the gods. Probably in this time. Oh, well, I don't know. Who knows? The divine, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Um, probably Christian God. Probably in this legend, it's like Christian God. Because, because it's the dark we, ages. We always believed in Christian God, even before Jesus was born, because Virgil predicted it. Um, yeah. You can't see my face. I'm like grimacing. <laughs> <laughs> so Jeremy Luigi the Hunter goes in, sprinkles the salt, goobity boobity in, you know, magic spell. Mm-hmm. Uh, if now we're going to fish again. And then um, he... <laughs> oh, the Lord makes fun of him. He's like, uh, would you like a hammer and chisel to carve that fish? <laughs> Shall I get you a hammer and chisel? Would you like a bottle of alcohol with your fish like the other guy got? <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Jeremy Luigi was like, no, it's fine. My fork and knife will shoot me just fine. And uh, he stabs into the fish and it's tender. And he mm. cuts it. He cuts a big old tuna steak out. Mm, sashimi right there Mm -hmm. and he eats it Uh, and then in the corner the statue of the bandito like comes to life and he's like oh I am finally at peace 
Dakil Paskis Hoto Magiato something in Latin. And then he like ages super fast okay. and then like turns into bones. <laughs> like he could finally die. Do you think that he had consciousness being a stone I'm, person? I mean that's that's the that's curse, the, right? Yeah, right. That's Is the that you're curse. alive. Yeah. But- you can't ever die. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> and then the, the Lord is like, well, how about that? I guess I have to have you marry my daughter. At least he's a man of his word. This is unexpected. <laughs> it's also unexpected that a man just turned into a skeleton in the corner. <laughs> yeah, I would be like, we need to find a new house. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and oh, they saw his, like, ghost cartoonish in the, in the legend. It's written that they... Uh, that the image of his spirit came and went forth and then vanished. So, like, a cartoon ghost, like, arrives into heaven, I guess. <laughs> um, like, the past, like, imagination or depiction of souls is so interesting. Virgil, like, officiates the wedding and they get married. The end. Aw, happy endings. These are, like... I just, again, want to contact Virgil's spirit and be like, what do you think? Because, like, I would be more, like, interested. He's probably just, like, this very, like, tortured artist when he was alive, like, wandering around with this, like, project that he didn't know how to finish and he didn't know how to do it well and he was going to die. And he's like, I can't be Homer because no one can be Homer, but he wanted to be Homer. It just, this poor guy has probably been blown out of proportion and he's probably just very this very sad artist just, like... I just couldn't do it well enough. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't imagine him being very prideful. If he was like, my entire life's work, just throw that away. Just <laughs> Let's just pretend that never happened. And they're like turning him into this this guy who gets stuck in buckets and shit. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it's honestly like the legends about him are so ridiculous. And then when you like see like modern like depictions of him, usually it's a reference to Dante. Mm. Um, but yeah. uh, so Virgil is an AI in Halo 3 ODST that's like kind of like your guide. Like mm-hmm. he helps tell you like, you know, where to go and what to do. Like Virgil is often like a stand in for a guide character in video games, except in Devil May Cry, where he's Dante's brother. <gasps> and they're half demons. They're Nephilim. So they're part demon, part angel. And they have to like come to terms with their infernal and celestial heritage and their rival brothers. And it's Japanese like anime game so i just like again so i just you know the whole thing of like someone being a spirit guide like posthumously i just find that like that whole thing is so virgil didn't know what the fuck he was doing like why are we like yep this is the it's just it's fine i just have i will say that he is a beautiful writer. Like he, yeah. he had like a very strong command of language, like nobody else had at the time in Rome. Well, and I think that's great. Um, I like my background is working with artists. I would never look at an artist and be like, "You have good advice for me." I know this to be true. Like, <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. I love like I'm super into poetry. I write poetry myself. Like I love writing. I'm very, very artistic. I need to have an artistic outlet. And like it terrifies me that people think I have good advice. I'm like, I don't know. I'm just an artist with some words. Like, I don't know. Speaking of bad advice from artists. (gasps) Yeah. We've got my book here. We do. Indigo League. 
poems inspired by Pokemon trainers. Lest you forget that RJ is a massive dork. (laughs) And we're going to do some bibliomancy with my dorky Pokemon poems to see if I have the, if my fan fiction has the makings to rival Virgil's fan fiction as a bibliomantic text. And then when I die, I can have legends about me being a wizard uh, after the boomy booms go off and humanity has to, like, restart from caveman times. We're, you know, and we're, we're could be very close. Who knows? Um, I do want to say really quick before we get into it that it might sound like a not very good book of poems or, like, you might be like, I don't know if I'm going to be into that. But RJ is, like, a very heartbreaking writer. Like, his stuff is just, like, it just, like, takes your soul um, out from your chest. And so I'm kind of excited because it's kind of similar, I think, in some ways between the Ain- uh, Aeneid. Aeneid. Yeah. Like I just like some of the language and like the specific pa- passages that I picked up. I was like, that's some like foreboding shit that RJ would write. Um, so the way I designed it was based on the original Pokemon games. And each trainer you encounter, like a bug catcher, bird keeper, uh, you encounter in the book and they have their own poem uh, is like a character piece. So it is like the journey of the game. It all occurs like in order. There's the gym leaders. Uh, there's a poem for each town in the game, eventually landing on Rival, uh, which is the rival that you have throughout the Pokemon games uh, being the final poem uh, of the book. So would you say this is also Homer fan fiction? Uh, <laughs> I would say that if Pokemon is Homer fan fiction, I'm doing a fan fiction of a fan fiction. You know what? I've seen those. All right. We've got my book Indigo League here about Pokemon. <laughs> and we have a, another supporter of the show, Yay. Comet. Yay. And Comet is asking L, what is my subconscious telling me right now that I am ignoring? Such a good question. This is like when people ask questions from psychics, um, often they're not as productive. This is a really productive question. Okay, so I'm going to go. Oh, okay. Um, so this is from the Atomic Arcade Kid in Celadon? Celadon City. Okay. And I went to this kind of, I don't know, uh, passage or what is it? A verse. Okay. Missing. Eight years old. Last seen February 1999. Brown eye, brown hair, brown eyes. Keen eye for the wondrous. Holds the high score. Has the power to be greater than you, which is possibly the reason why they are missing. Bring them back safely and better than you found them. There's a reward. It is a type of fire. So I think um, this is talking about Comet really needing to reconnect with who they are and the things that they want in their life. Like it's this kind of um, obviously it's pretty sad. It's like a missing ad kind of a thing and talking about, um, the reasons we go missing. And I think that there's a lot of elements in that of Comet, um, not kind of acknowledging how awesome they are, not acknowledging, um, how much power they have and the things that they can do and what they can control and how they can really, um, kind of take back their life. And so it's like their subconscious is like, Hey, um, we're pretty cool. We've got all of these cool things to do. Can we have a chance to do them? Like, is it time for us to start doing the things? Um, And I think also just acknowledging Comet's 
like ability and capability and like just that they're a super cool person that can and is I don't know, can do cool things, is capable of a lot of stuff. And their subconscious is kind of like, hey, can we get to the part where we acknowledge that and then do something about it instead mm. of kind of hiding? So I think it's a lot about um, Comet kind of being disconnected from who they are and needing to reconnect with that. Huh. I'm going to, I think, do another passage. Okay. Uh, I'll give some context for that poem. So I wrote that poem... Um, Whenever I would get really sad, uh, instead of killing myself, I would go to this dilapidated arcade <laughs> that was open till 3 a.m., but technically 24 hours because the owner was always too lazy to close it. And it was just always open, so I would just go there. <laughs> and in one of the old arcade cabinets, there was a missing child ad from the 80s and mm. like a blurry picture uh, of this kid's face. And in my depression, I was like, I feel like I am that that missing child that I just kind of like wandered, you know, into some grass and went missing, which is very much Pokemon. You wander into the tall grass when you're 10 and then you just don't come back home. Well, and I think that's like, that's, if you have, if you've ever, ever had any sort of mental illness or struggle with depression or anything, that's how it feels. It's like, you just feel so disconnected from who you are and it's like i'm sure everyone who listens to this will have like will resonate with this experience of someone saying well who are you and you're just like i i don't i don't know i don't know that anyone's ever asked me that before Mm -hmm. so it's kind of an interesting like that like disassociation but i think there's also this part of us like if we have mental illness if we're struggling with our self-worth to like look at things and be like you can't ever be capable of anything because it's a lot easier to fail if you're never going to be good at anything, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it's like, right? You're like, well, I was never going to be good, so it doesn't matter anyway. And like really like going after your dreams and your talents is like it's so vulnerable. And so putting yourself out there and saying like, this is what I have to offer you and this is the best thing about me. And then to figure out that maybe it's not that great. Um, it's a lot easier in depression, in mental illness to separate yourself from that and just say I was never good at anything anyway. But there there is this in, inner part, this inner child in all of us that's like, um, remember that time we used to skip rocks in the lake and we were really good at that? And maybe that's not going to ever win me money, but it proves I can do something right. And mm-hmm. so it's a little bit of that like reconnection and really urging Comet to just like acknowledge how freaking awesome they are in some small way and reconnect with that part of themselves. So, Okay. We're, we're doing another passage? We're going to do another passage. Okay. Um. It's interesting. So this is called Lass. I got you this. A rock? It's not a rock. It's a door. If it's a door, where does it lead? To me. Um, And I think that's kind of interesting because I want to... uh, I'm... The divination or like what I'm equating that to from my guides is looking at this as like... um, an inner door to yourself of like sometimes you're just given something useless like a rock but you don't know what that means to people you don't know what those small experiences are it's kind of like um i always when i'm feeling really small or when i'm feeling like the world is too much or too big i go to like the highest place i can find and then i just look at the city or i look at the world and i'm just like okay i'm so small but i feel more empowered in that because there was something that needed me there and so this kind of it's not a rock it's a door like you can't really define what things mean to people. You can't be like, oh, no, this is always going to be a rock and that's the only thing it can ever mean when it could be a diamond and that's really significant because maybe it was their mother's wedding ring diamond. You know, like those kinds of things. You don't know what's underneath it. 
And also coming back to Comet's self, where does it lead to me? Well, I think that's interesting because everything could lead to yourself. Like everything could lead back to anything. And so I think deriving meaning from different things is the point of that, of like anything can be anything, just depending on what you call it. That's kind of like magic. Like magic works because we believe in it. Everything works because that's what we've decided. Like Virgil's like... I don't know, some random guy who was like, what I've done is not nearly good enough and I don't know how to be this person. And then everyone, you know, imprinted on him and said, no, this is what you mean to me. That's how Jesus is. That's how God is. It's like, no, this is what it means to me. And then, you know, the church says, no, no, it can't mean that. It has to mean this. Um, and so it's interesting because that's kind of like, it might just be a rock or it might not be a rock. And so looking for meaning in the hidden things. Hmm. Um, I think when I wrote that poem, um, I was inspired by... Um, the Name of the Wind uh, by Patrick Rothfuss. And there's a character who hands uh, the main character a key. And he's like, well, what does this key unlock? And she says, the moon. Um, <laughs> and uh, I really loved that because, like, you could you could give somebody something and you could just ascribe meaning to that mm-hmm. something. And that meaning is what holds the value. Not like it's just a rock, it's but it's a rock is... that means everything. Yeah. Um, because we've ascribed that meaning and agreed on that meaning. Um, and uh, if you keep reading in Indigo League, you uh, get to Brock's poem, the gym leader of uh, Pewter City. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a rock salesman, but he doesn't actually sell rocks. He sells the secrets the rocks know. Um, and what the last poem has is a rock that knows a secret, and she's giving it as a gift. Where is that? Oh. Uh, it's near the it's near the beginning. Um, Brock's poem is also very sad. <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, and like, but if you like watch Pokemon and like learn Brock's story, like his dad just like abandons the family to go be a Pokemon master, <laughs> and they have like he's like a brother in a family of like eleven kids, and then his mom is like, you know, I just can't do this, and then just disappears, and then right. he's just basically the oldest brother and has to like be this parent and also the gym leader of the city, while his dad just like f's off to be a Pokemon. Pokemon master and his mom just like shirks her responsibility and disappears. Uh, and it's like super heartbreaking for a kid's show that I saw on Saturday morning when I was 10. <laughs> <laughs> this is why RJ is the way he is. It's actually just Pokemon's fault. Um, do you, can I read it? Should I read Brock's poem? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Rock. I'm not a salesman. I'm a rock salesman. Actually, That's not entirely true. People don't buy the rocks. They buy the secrets inside of the rocks. Indeed, I sell the finest rocks with the finest secrets in Pewter City. But it's not just the shiniest rock, not that it has the best secret. No, no. It's how the rock learned the secret that makes the stone precious. Take a look at this brown chunk of granite. It learned how to fight, how to end a fight when she pushed it through the back of her husband's skull. And this smooth stone learned the five words that will make anyone fall in love with you for a day by catching an engagement ring that was tossed into the river. This rock, though, this rock is not for sale. This rock learned where my father went on the day my mother dove headfirst into it like a feather pillow and never woke up. So, yeah, this poetry is really sad. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm so sad. Um, um, but, you know, even if you don't uh, like Pokemon, though, it's, it's uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, what, what do you think? Uh, am I going to be a wizard in a thousand years? <laughs> 
I think you can be whatever you want to be. I think like the virtue of being a poet or being an artist and like making things is you make this thing that like means something very specific and you're like, this is what I meant. And then you put it into the world and everyone bastardizes it. And says, yeah. This is what I meant. Like that's what we do in English classes, right? They're like, oh, no, no. Uh, Toni Morrison didn't mean that. Toni Morrison meant that. Um, and so I think the virtue of that is, yeah, I think if you're an artist, I think if you make things, if you make things to be consumed by people, um, it as soon as you make it and you give it to someone else, it doesn't mean what it meant anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of like the point of Virgil. It's like I like to me, I'm just I think astounded because I just see like the end of his life and everything like just that feeling of like he's never going to be good enough. And you know what people did? They turned him into, like, a fucking moral story. Like, and I just, I fucking hate that. Like, just let the man die, you know? Just let him be dead and, like, burn the book. Call it good. It doesn't, I don't know. I think the way we ascribe meaning to things is broken and kind of fucked up. Yeah. Well, um, a lot of people, like, when they talk about magic, they're like, magic and science are the same thing. Magic is just science that hasn't been that discovered yet. That we don't yet. understand Yeah, yet. that's like a quote from, like, Dr. Strange. Oh, yeah. But I I think that language is is magic. Uh, like, mm-hmm. like, you know, the ability to create and ascribe meaning where um, there is no inherent mathematical or scientific meaning like yes math is absolutely magic uh, we, yeah. all, we all know that yeah. um, but language too is magic like I can you know say a word and then that conjures that can conjure a whole picture in your head right. uh, that can conjure a whole story it can conjure feelings it can make you do crazy things that you might never have even considered doing you know like uh the Malleus Maleficarum led to, like, the Spanish Inquisition and led to people who probably never would have tortured anybody with thumbscrews uh, to thumbscrew people. Um, I think, that's the power of language. Right. I mean, I think that's the thing that when you look at um, – yeah, I don't know, kind of that magic that you make. And um, my readings, if you've ever gotten, like, a reading from me, it's probably, like, the language is probably very strange in it. Or, like, I like when I do my readings and I write them out, I, like, have to add, like, all sorts of, like, parentheses where I'm like, I don't know what the fuck this means, but I hope it makes sense to you. Because the language is so specific. And, like, as a reader, you have to figure out, like, at certain times, I'm not supposed to understand what's being said. And things are not said to me to understand it's for my clients. And I think it's kind of interesting because that is where the magic lies. And that's if you think about the times that you've been healed or that you just have been comforted, you know, like by quotes online or when someone says something to you or when someone shares space with you, it's so often the words that stick with you that stay with you. I think bibliomancy is interesting in that because, like I said, when you create something that's consumable, as soon as it becomes consumed, it no longer means what you said it was going to mean. It just can't. It just won't because that's the nature of things. That's the nature of humans that we're all the same and we all have completely different experiences from each other. No matter if you've lived the same life as someone else, you do not have their brain. You don't know. And so I think bibliomancy is a really interesting form because a form of divination because you can take it to mean whatever you want it to mean. You can look back at Virgil's writing and be like, oh, this is the prediction of Christ, when it probably fucking wasn't. Like, it probably was never that. <laughs> um, but you can decide that it does. And then one person, one person who maybe is president says, no, that's what it means. And then all of the people believe him because the, they have to, I don't know, they have an authority or they've just decided that's what it means. So I think it's interesting because bi- bibliomancy can both be 
the intention and also like the intention of the writing, the intention of the words, the intention of that story, and also our interpretation of that. And divination is always interpretation. And so it's kind of interesting because maybe both of the people who I did readings for, John and Comet, um, will listen to this and be like, it doesn't mean that. It means this. And that's fine. That's great. If that's what it means to them, then that's what it should mean. So it's kind of interesting because um, – in, like, some parts, like, obviously you can tell I'm maybe a little upset about Virgil and kind of how he's <laughs> canonized. Like, it bothers me. Um, mostly because I'm afraid that people will do that to me someday. That people will take everything I've written and everything I've ever said and just say, no, no, no she meant this. Like, that, I hate that idea. Um, <laughs> because I didn't. I promise you I didn't mean that. But, um I think you can look at that both as like a really positive thing and a really negative thing in kind of people's experiences. Yeah, it's like uh, the latest season of Umbrella Academy where Klaus becomes uh, a cult leader accidentally. Mm. Uh, and he shows up and he's like, hey, I just want to let you all know that like I lied to you. I can't really communicate with ghosts. I'm a liar. And then everybody stands up and they go, I'm a liar. I'm lying now to I myself. Now I have to follow you. Uh, yeah, and they all just kind of like uh, do what – he says, even though he's, like, trying to come out and say that he's a fraud, they're all like, I'm a fraud. We're all frauds to ourselves. We're all frauds in our souls. So a real-life example of that is the documentary Kumare. Yeah, yeah. And um, <laughs> if you've ever, like, asked me about being a reader, I've probably been like, okay, I need you to go watch two documentaries for me. The first one is Bikram, and then you're going to watch Kumari. Um, and it has to be done in that order, and it has to be done, like, in the same day for you to really understand, like, my point of how dangerous it is for people to be, like, in cult mindsets and how dangerous it is to like put spiritual people on a pedestal because like I don't know what I'm doing I like I just you know I'm a psychic that like knows stuff but I like get flashes like three years before my parents divorced I was like I'm pretty sure my parents are going to get a divorce and they're and everyone's like no that's not gonna happen that's not real and I was like okay but like I don't know that that ever helped me the three years up leading up to that event and so I think that's kind of like it's really dangerous to look at the people around us and think that they're anything but human. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. And, like, you see these legacies get away from people. Like, with the Founding Fathers and, like, yeah. how they're, like, deified. And really they were just, like, a bunch of flawed old white dudes that um, did not do a lot of – like, they did a lot of not good stuff. A lot of them were slave owners. Um, but, you know, the legend gets away from them because they were ordained by God to create America. I, uh, yeah. I, like – I really struggle with the idea of, like, psychics being chosen. Like, oh, I've been, I've been like, tapped to be this – incredible and like no um i don't i've tried to be a lot of different things and being a psychic just happens to be the thing that i think i'm best at and the thing that i can offer the world i don't really think that like god chose me and like i don't know put a cross on my forehead or anything like that i just think like i'm just a person who has to go through stuff and i think my life is more complicated for the things that i know and understand um but yeah it's like i don't know that creating something to be consumed. And I think that's the thing that's hard about artists is that artists will always be part of their work, but people will always misunderstand them because just like their art, they're up for interpretation. Well, that was our episode about bibliomancy. Next time, we're going to look at automatic writing. Yay! Uh, I'm so excited. Automatic writing, also known as psychography, uh, is divination by entering a trance and channeling spirits to write out messages. L and I actually visited the um, 
cult compound of a famous, like, automatic writing spiritualist uh, earlier this summer on a ghost town tour. Uh, so we're going to be talking about her and how she channeled the spirits to form a cult and try to raise the dead. Uh, so stay tuned for that. We do have some good spooky stories about our visit. And if you're on my Twitter at all, you saw the pictures that I posted earlier this summer. And so we're going to tell you guys about the story of that and talk to you about the woman who did it. Uh, If you like the show, please share with your friends. Word of mouth support is how we get this thing off the ground. Um, Share episodes you like uh, online. Listen to them on road trips. uh, Practice magic. Do crimes. Um, Yeah, be gay, do crimes, practice magic. (laughs) Please don't do a love spell. Don't ever do a love spell. (laughs) Do not call me if you've done a love spell. I will tell you it's too late. I'm just kidding. I'll actually help you, but don't do love spells. (laughs) Uh, The more support we have, the more episodes we can make, uh, and the more crazy magic stuff I can buy for us to attempt to use. Yeah, RJ and I just love talking about weird stuff, and we like to find things in history that we're like, what the fuck was happening in this world? (laughs) So uh, thanks for being interested in learning about that with us. This episode of Mansi was written and produced by me, RJ Walker, featuring the psychic talents of L. Alder. You can look me up on Instagram at Dollar Compliments, or if you like my poems and writing, you can find me at rjwalkerpoet.com. And I am L. Alder. You can find me on Twitter at Laurels of Lux, L A U R E L S of Lux, L U X. And you can also find my Etsy account at the same name, and you can order readings from me there. You can support the show by visiting patreon.com slash mansi. Music was provided by In Order of Appearance, Hayden Fulker, Miyu, and Scott Buckley.